This show is brought to you by Hospice Chaplaincy, promoting excellence in spiritual care at the end of life. For more information, please visit www.hospicechaplaincy.com. You are listening to The Hospice Chaplaincy Show, a show where we talk about the psycho-spiritual and psychosocial aspects of end-of-life care. You can find our podcast everywhere you get your podcasts. If you enjoy listening to this podcast, please don't forget to give us your feedback by writing a review on iTunes and any platform you listen to the show from. And now, here are your hosts, Joe and Saul. From Hospice Chaplains and Audio Hive Podcasting Studios in Joliet, Illinois, this is the Hospice Chaplaincy Show. I'm Saul Abama. And I'm Joe Newton. Our guest today is Meredith Snell. She's the manager of social work and chaplain at Hope Health and Providence in Rhode Island. Welcome to the show. Thank you. Thank you so much for having me. So where did you grow up? I am originally from Dallas, Texas, born and raised, and moved here um, after I finished my graduate studies at the University of Michigan. As a child, uh, what was your faith uh, tradition growing up? So I was uh, raised Jewish, and I still continue to practice um, my Judaism and um, kind of use the values that I learned as a child and continue to, um, you know, reteach to my children as my foundation of how I manage and um, how I live my life. It's really, um, it's really the driving force behind who I am as an individual. And I can tell when I get off off track. Uh, with my with my own soul, right? Like if things aren't going in the right direction, I, I always have to take a turn back and say, okay, go back to your faith, go back to your core and um, figure out, you know, how you need to lead with, with love and kindness and ser- good service. A uh, question I have for you uh, as part of your background, uh, you went to University of Mich- Michigan, was the graduate in studies in what? So my um, my undergrad at the University of North Texas was in um, was in social work, and then my graduate studies were also in social work at the University of Michigan, but also a certificate in Judaic um, um, community service. So it was it's through a program called the Drockler Program, and they specifically work on creating the next um, leaders of Jewish communal work. So it it was specifically in how to be an effective Jewish communal leader. Um, and so we used a lot of text, a lot of um, biblical references, a lot of religious context to help to understand what makes an effective leader. And that was kind of what got me on my path. Had you intentionally decided to do this type of uh, educational program? Because it certainly lends to your your current position, it sounds like. Well, you know, when I was when I was in Dallas, I used to work at a synagogue that had about 1800 families. And one of the rabbis informed me about clinical pastoral education, because in order for them to become ordained, um, many of the rabbinic programs require that they take at least one unit of CPE. So he said, you know what? I see this in your future someday. And I was like, okay. And this was when I was about 22 years old. And that was two decades ago. Um, And I a couple of years ago, I decided to pursue it. It just, mm. it felt right. It felt like the, the good timing. Um, and my soul was screaming, you know, this is the path you were destined for. So I found our clinical pastoral education program here in the state. Um, it was through the chaplaincy center and I'm both a social worker and a chaplain. So I get to integrate all of the skills that I learned in um, my training as a social worker into ha- how I approach um, hospice chaplaincy as well. 
So it's a, it's a great combination. There's a lot of skills that overlap. There's a lot of skills that um, complement each other. Um, and there's a lot of skills that um, can kind of uplift you and teach you how to grow in ways that maybe you weren't able to, to do it if you didn't have both degrees, right? So I have a great, a great education in substance abuse. I have a great education in psychiatric treatment. Um, I have a great education in um, family dynamics. Um, which we all know in our chaplaincy role, that's the that's the pudding on the on the cake, if they, as they say, you know, it's 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 perfect. Um, it works out really nicely, and it helps me navigate dialogue and conversation that maybe some people are really uncomfortable with. How many chaplains and social workers are under your management? There, and do you get a chance to go to the field? I do. Great question. So I have thirty three people that I supervise. Um, we are a organization, we're the largest, largest hospice agency in the state. So I have 700 patients um, that we're responsible for. And my, my team of about 15 chaplains and about um, the remainder are social workers, um, we all work diligently together as a collaborative care team to really provide the best care possible. And, you know, part of that's at making sure that my chaplains get continuing education, um, learning, learning about the changes in Medicare standards, um, making sure that they are learning about um, different religious faiths. We're exploring spiritual trauma. Um, how does post-traumatic stress disorder work, especially in COVID-19? And then as you can imagine, a lot of those also translate into, um, into the skills that my social workers need. So it works out really nicely. And, and there's a lot of learning that happens with one another. So in our, in our correspondence, you say that right now you're helping uh, your team with emotional PPE. Could you define that for our listeners? Absolutely. So, you know, as an agency, we really wanted to make sure that senior leadership and anyone who was in a leadership role had the emotional PPE that they needed. So, you know, we call it personal protective equipment, but we don't necessarily have the skills, the strategies, the tools in our toolbox or even the PPE to emotionally make sure that we're protecting ourselves from what we're being faced with right now. And that includes supporting patients, it includes supporting families, but it also includes supporting your staff members right now. And you know, most leaders are not trained in how to do this. Um, you know, we're trained in, uh, in management, leadership, um, but that doesn't always include the emotional piece of it or how to make sure your soul is being protected by the amount of um, grief work that we're seeing and the emotional um, experiences that people are having and the death and the loss and the last lack of accessibility to, to your loved ones um, or not being able to grieve in the appropriate way that we have normally had these beautiful rituals um, to help us through that process. So we started an emotional PPE series for our leadership team. And we've had three, um, three series so far, three sessions. The first session is on really, what do you need? In this moment, how can I help myself? And we call it self-care, but I think it's even more than that. It's more of listening to your soul, listening to your body, listening to the messages that you're receiving, um, and really identifying in this moment, what do I need? Is it something physical like water or food? Is it a break? Is it a timeout? Is it a debriefing session? Is it further support? Um, and how does that look like? And every single day and every moment, it's changing. Um, you know, with our stressors that we have outside of work, um, our 
our approach to life is is always so different and there's no roadmap for what we're experiencing right now. Mm. So we really tried to encourage our leaders to take a moment to understand what do they need in order to be an effective human being and an effective leader. The second um the second series um, or second session of our series is on active listening. What does it take to be an active listener? So again, our leaders are trained to, to manage, but when somebody comes into your office and needs support, needs help, um, is overwhelmed with life in a way that we've never experienced before, how do you make that person feel validated and heard and listened to um, and appreciated and normalize what they're going through? And most of our leaders aren't trained in that. Our chaplains do an incredible job of doing that because we train them to to know how to do that and to have those skills. And so are our social workers, but our leadership is not really equipped. And so our chaplains have really worked hard to give their teams that they sit on the space to share their concerns, share their grief, share their losses, and to role model for the leaders through our chaplains how to be an effective and an active listener. The third um, session that we've had so far, um, and there's probably hopefully many more to come, um, but the last session that we just did was on crisis. You know, we are all in a state of crisis right now. In some capacity, we are all experiencing some type of trauma or change in our normal that has transformed our lives unexpectedly. We can always do pretty well if we know that something's coming up, right? If we have to plan ahead for something, we can emotionally and physically prepare. We do that through our calendars. We do that through making sure we packed a lunch. We do that through making sure that, you know, our kids are where they need to be. But when COVID-19 hit, it put everybody into crisis in some capacity. So we really reviewed for leadership, what is crisis? What does it look like? How can it manifest itself in your in your team members and in the staff that you're leading? And then what interventions are at your fingertips so that you can be an effective leader and really support your team member? Because ultimately, we need those people to go back into the field and provide support to our patients and families. But, you know, they always say, if you don't put your oxygen mask on first, you can't really care for anybody else, right? That's such yes. a cliche. It's such a cliche. But it's also so real. If you aren't taking care of yourself, if you have nothing left in your emotional tank or your spiritual tank or your physical tank, Mm. you can't give anybody else anything. You can't lead, you can't guide, you can't support, you can't be a compassionate presence. There's, There's nothing for you to provide. So understanding really what crisis is, what it looks like. You know, if you have somebody who comes into your office and says, you know what? Today, when I left the house, I found out that my kids now have to be home for two weeks. And then my grandfather is now COVID positive. Um, And then we asked them to go in to see a COVID positive patient. That's hard. And you're putting, are you setting them up for success? And having that dialogue and creating that conversation of openness and transparency of where are you emotionally? Where are you in crisis today? Are you in crisis, but able to move forward and take care of what you need to do? Or are you in crisis and you need a timeout and you need a break? And that's okay too. 
And I think giving people permission to be able to take that break and to have that space to be human and not be this super hospice chaplain that, you know, wears a cape and a mask and can defeat anything that is thrown their way isn't real. We're heroes, but heroes, you know, also need to take time out for themselves also. It's incredible that you were able to to open the eyes to the management, I guess, the leadership. And and here you're really actually telling the leadership, hey, uh, we need to really look at this and you need to look at it. And how yeah. did, did you bring that to everybody or was that someone else? So we, um, we have um, a senior leader who's one of our vice presidents and um, he brought forward that we need to be doing more for our leaders. We had a program called Heal the Healer um, but the reality is, is that the healers need to be the healers. It, it, let me take a step back. The Heal the Healer program was peer focused, mm-hmm. but we can't do that right now. We can't support one another if we can't support ourselves. Mm. So, um, so we really wanted to arm our team members, and it was brought forth by this vice president. How do we do that? How do we give our leaders the skills and the tools that they need? to support people in a way that they've never had to support anybody before in this manner. They it's, you know, it's, it's like throwing somebody on the football field and being like, Hey, you're the quarterback. I need you to go throw the football, but they've never, they don't even know where the seams are on the football, right? (laughs) They don't know who the, they don't know who they're supposed to be throwing it to. Mm. What's a wide receiver. And then they get tackled. And how do you get them to stand back up again on their own two feet, brush off the, the dust and pick up that football again? It's really challenging. It's quite difficult. And, um, you know, so it was a a team of myself, the bereavement department, um, one of our social workers who runs the pediatric palliative care team. Um, The vice president is on it as well. Um, And then um, another individual who assists with um, kind of community engagement and organizing. So it was definitely a team effort. Our guest today is Meredith Snell. She's the manager of social work and chaplains at Hope Health. We'll be right back. We've been waiting, waiting for COVID-19 vaccines to be developed. Now, waiting for them to get to us. But you can do more than wait. You have powerful ways to help slow the spread right now and protect your family and loved ones too. Here's how. Watch your distance. Stay at least six feet away from folks you don't live with. It's risky to be indoors with them, too. And, of course, avoid crowds. Also, wear a mask. CDC reports masks protect the people who wear them and folks around them. And wash your hands using soap and water for 20 seconds. And do it frequently. Vaccines won't make COVID go away overnight. But they give us a real chance to finally overcome it. As long as we keep watching our distance, wearing our masks, and washing our hands. Learn more about vaccines at cdc.gov slash coronavirus. Brought to you by the U.S. Department of Health and Human Services. We continue our conversation with Meredith now. Uh, how has the pandemic affected your staff? Nobody has been untouched from COVID-19. Mm-hmm. There is absolutely no way, except for I think there was one gentleman who was on a boat sailing around the world and then came back onto land and was like, why is everyone wearing masks? Um, but nobody's been un- untouched by the pandemic. It's absolutely impossible not to. It's really transformed um, how we as chaplains are approaching um, our care. 
we are um, coming up with some really creative ways to connect with people. You know, we just had Ash Wednesday and we followed the guidelines from um, the Pope to sprinkle ashes this year. Um, you know, we when we want to touch somebody, um, when we need to touch somebody at end of life, we're using gloves now, whereas before it was skin to skin. We're using the telephone for face-to-face conversations with patients and family members because we can't access them in the long-term care facilities as much as we used to. Um, so we've we've really had to pivot in a way that um, I think everyone has had to because of the pandemic. But the emotional burden, you know, I I remember um, I actually wrote a reflection on it when I first had to put on PPE, and um, it was in the outside of a, of an alley of somebody's home. Um, they happen to live above a restaurant. So I'm kind of like in this random area, donning my PPE and putting it on and um, trying to be spiritual about it and methodical about it as, as though it was some type of holy moment. And um, I remember walking into this patient's home and trying to be actively present, but sweating, um, wondering if they could hear me because they had fans on in their home. It was in, um, you know, it was March, April. So it was starting to get warm. Um, and our patients at end of life are always cold or many times they're cold. So they have the, you know, the heat blaring and you're covered top to bottom. So how do you maintain a sense of presence when you are covered from head to toe in this kind of barrier that's there to protect you, but is also a barrier sometimes between you and the patient and the connection that you're trying to make. And, you know, I think that um, at first it was really challenging for for a lot of our chaplains and for all of our team members um, to really make that emotional connection with people. And then as we, you know, started to become our norm and all of us are wearing masks, it's become a little bit more comfortable, um, but there's still a sense of loss in all of that um, in the pandemic. You know, COVID-19 has taken away one of our most important senses, and that's the sense of touch. We don't hug people the same way we used to, um, and we don't comfort people in the same way we used to by holding their hand at end of life for long periods of time. And we're so cautious about making sure that we're not transmitting something that could ultimately lead to somebody's demise. Um, we know they're on hospice, so we know eventually they're going to die um, from their own disease, but we don't want to be the cause of that. And so there's such a, a heightened awareness about, um, about your surroundings, about your environment, about the PPE that you're wearing, but then also trying to main, remain incredibly present um, and focused and grounded in that moment. And that's tough. It's been really hard. Well, that's been very difficult. I mean, you brought up that story there of you going to the patient's home. Uh, I've been to a facility once, yeah, I don't know how many months after this whole thing started. And, of course, put all the stuff on. And I walk in and down the hallway and I feel like I'm an alien. Uh, I'm just not supposed to be there. How mm-hmm. am I supposed to present myself like I have in the past? And for me, it, for me, it had to get, I had to get used to it. I still am not to the the degree. I don't ever you know, would ever have to would ever like to have to go through this again, uh, because I am like you, uh, a touchy, uh, present person. And when you have even with the mask, it bugs me. 
mm-hmm. because I can't. They they don't see my smile. They don't see my face. You know, I might they might not have a mask on, but uh, but when they do, I can't see it either. You know, all you see are the eyes, but you mm-hmm. still look into their soul. So that's a good thing. Yeah. I mean, that's a, this is very helpful to hear you talk about your story about that. Yeah, it was it was hard, and I think I think what's also helpful is not just as a manager or as a manager. I try to go out into the field um, every once in a while just to maintain um, some humility, um, honestly, and also to make sure that I'm understanding um, what I'm asking my team members to do on a daily basis. And you know, the pandemic has really. Um, put a, a tremendous amount of stress um, on people. You know, when before the pandemic, this was our tool, mm-hmm. right? Most people as chaplains, we don't walk in with a whole host. We're not nurses. We don't walk in with a kit of interventions, whether it's a wound, we don't have a Band-Aid to, to put on top of it. Or if there's pain, we don't have medication to fix it. This was our tool. And so when we put the PPE on, it kind of became a little bit of a, of a barrier to some extent of are my tools still accessible? How do I access them knowing that I've got this discomfort and um, you know I'm human too and this doesn't feel good to me, but I ha- am here on a mission and I'm here to provide a service and mm-hmm. I'm here to provide support. And how do I do that um, by still honoring the experience that I'm having? And it's it's been hard. It's 100% been a challenge for each and every person who's in hospice right now or in the healthcare field in general. Mm-hmm. Have you had any staff quit because of the moral injury this situation has caused? Um, I haven't. I, you know, I have had a few chaplains who, because of their age and their um, their own medical concerns or medical concerns in their family, they have had to step back. Because at the beginning of the pandemic, we were still asking people to make as many face-to-face visits as possible. That's where the magic happens. The magic doesn't happen over the telephone. Mm-hmm. And unfortunately, because they weren't able to do that, we asked them to step down. Um, but now, as we've had to pivot and become more and more creative with our approach, um, you know, people are, are doing a lot more work from home. But it was scary. People were terrified at the beginning of the pandemic. You know, there's because there was so much uncertainty and um, and so much unclear messages coming out and um, about how it's transmitted and um, what the the um, what cautions you need to be taking. And it was changing all the time. So it was this like sensory overload of information of, you know, th- today we told you to do this, but tomorrow it's going to be something different. And, and also um, developing trust with our team members that we have their best interest at heart. We're not just asking them to go out and be warriors and soldiers in battle. We're asking them to make sure that they put on their emotional PPE first and then put on the physical PPE before you go out and take care of patients. Mm. You spoke about um, the moment when you first put on your PPE and you're in that uh, place about to go into the patient home. And uh, just the ritual of it, uh, you said it seemed like some kind of holy but not. Um, could that be redeemed as some kind of... Uh, a spiritual ritual. Absolutely. I mean, you know, when I re- I used to work in a um, a hospital, a Jewish hospital here called the Miriam Hospital, and on every single door they have a mezuzah, which is um, 
it's a, um, an item that you put on your doorpost and it has a special prayer. And every time I would walk into a patient's room in that hospital, that was my ritual. I would touch the mezuzah and ground myself so that I was enter ready to enter into sacred ground. When you walk into a patient's room, when you walk into their home, you're a guest and you're walking into holy ground. And it's, um, it's very important that you treat it as such. And so with the PPE, having that ritual, going slow, um, trying to be methodical of, you know, I'm putting these gloves on, on these hands that heal. I'm putting on this math, mask to protect um, the words that come out of my mouth. I'm putting on these goggles so that I can see more clearly the person in front of me. Um, and making sure that you're identifying the process as something also holy and sacred. Um, and I think if, if when you find those opportunities to take the mundane and make it sacred, it makes it a little bit more accessible and less scary um, and also more meaningful for the person who we're asking to do just that. We'll take a little break. Our guest again is Meredith Snell. She's the manager of social work and chaplains at Hope Health. We'll be right back. If someone you know is suffering from mental health issues and could use some support, please call the National Alliance for Mental Illness Helpline. It is a free nationwide peer support service, providing information, resource referrals, and support to people living with a mental health condition. To contact the NAMI helpline, please call 1-800-950-NAMI. That's 1-800-950-6264, Monday through Friday, or send an email to info at nami.org. You're listening to season two of the Hospice Chaplaincy Show. I'm Sole Bama. Uh, we are continuing our conversation with Meredith now. How did your department adjust, you know, with documentation? I mean, now you used to visit, you know, that is at the yeah. height of the pandemic. Then all of a sudden we're told, don't visit. So how did your department adjust to continue to remain relevant? within the organization, knowing that they're still continuing to do the work from home. Yeah. You know, a lot of the work that um, that we used to do in terms of our documentation and note-taking um, was, was really clear about how did you communicate with the patient or the family member, um, making sure that it's really, um, it's stated very clearly that you know, I met them in the home, we met face-to-face, -face. I met with the primary caregiver face-to-face, -face. and now we're having to document, did not make the visit because of COVID-19, wasn't allowed to access the facility because of COVID-19, family member declined because of concerns of COVID-19, family member declined because they had a possible exposure to COVID-19. And as we all know, you know, the chaplains are an incredibly valued member of the collaborative care team, but sometimes people don't understand the value that we offer. And so we did see a decline in um, chaplaincy um, opportunities, chaplaincy connections, chaplaincy visits, um, mainly because people were trying to restrict the amount of individuals that were coming and going from their facility or from their house. So that was challenging. And um, a lot of our work has had to pivot onto the telephone. And the it's just not as meaningful. Um, you know, it can be, don't get me wrong, it absolutely can be. You know, knowing that somebody's in your corner um, and checking on you and making sure that you're not alone um, has been a great 
approach and a reminder to the people who are isolated that you're not alone through this process. Um, but I think it's been hard. I think it's been incredibly difficult. In terms of our documentation, not much has changed. I mean, we have to document when we miss those visits or, you know, and we have these regulations that you need to see a patient within five days. And, you know, sometimes that's just not possible right now. And, you know, we have an expectation of visit frequency. We have an expectation of how many visits the chaplain is going to make in a, um, in a week or even in a day. And those expectations have to um, be looked at right now because it's unrealistic to think that a chaplain is going to be able to go out and see four to five people in a day when a lot of them are inaccessible. And that's been hard. A follow-up on that question. Uh, As you were talking and you were identifying, of course, all that we have to go through uh, when we're out there in the field, how do you see things being different post-COVID? The reality is, is that we don't know the traumatic effects that this pandemic is going to have on our mental health. When we're given a chance to breathe and really look back at the experience that we've had as a community and as a um, uh, as a, as a society, and we're going through this um, collective experience, I think it's going to uh, um, unmask um, some challenges with our mental health system. And I think it's also going to um, illuminate for us that being isolated, being cut off from the people that you love, being um, unable to, again, like we said before, touch and hug and um, nurture people in the way that came so naturally for us, um, for many of us, um, is really going to help us to determine what steps we need to take next. I think as a um, society, we need to be more proactive in providing mental health and getting in front of the fact that our healthcare workers are being traumatized to some extent. Um, You know, some more than others, um, maybe because of their own personal experiences or whatever's going on in their own home life. But we have, um, we've really pushed the boundaries of um, what people can handle and what they can manage and ask them to step up in a way that they've never had to in their entire lives. And I don't think that we can really fully understand um, what is going to happen to our society and to families and to individuals and even to mental health workers who are holding so much of this right now and our chaplains who are holding so much of this right now for so many people. Um, And it doesn't give a lot of space for the healer to heal themselves right now because we are holding so much for others. And I think we have to um, continue to teach our clinicians how to work on their boundaries um, and teach our clinicians, um, you know, better skills on how to make sure that they are putting their oxygen mask on first. But as a chaplain, you always want to help. It's just an inherent part of who you are. And part of it is questioning, you know, did I do this because it was for me or did I do this because it was for the patient? Mm-hmm. And I think that we need to work on our boundaries and strengthen them even more and be a little bit more clear about what we can handle and what we can offer and what we can't and not see that with guilt or um, resentment toward ourselves or disappointment and what we can't offer because we're human. And I think we have to honor that humanness in in one another and understand that things can't go back to the way they were. So I think that the pandemic has given people a gift in many ways, not just 
not just through the isolation or through the um, not being able to access your friends, but really to take inventory. What's important to you? How do you want to communicate with the people that are important to you? And maintaining those relationships in ways that maybe you hadn't before through letter writing or um, through phone calls or text messages or emails or group chats. You know, there's there's so many ways to stay connected to the people that you love. And we took it all for granted. And now that we can't have it, you know, we've had to learn, we've we've shown more gratitude, I think. Isn't that part of the proactive proactivity that we need to have is for people to recognize the fact and help people recognize the fact how how blessed we are. Yes. And I don't think we do enough of that as a community as a as a world. Yeah. Well, I mean, it's so easy to not, you know, if it's sun shining out day, we can always find that, you know, oh, but the sunshine shows all the spots on the windows, which means I need to clean the windows, right? <laughs> Instead of appreciating the fact that we have the sunshine, um, we're just, that's our human nature. We have a tendency to sometimes not see the silver lining, mm-hmm. but if we take a, if we take a moment and really pause and make it, um, you know, part of our, of our um, our process on a daily basis to really give thanks for all of the blessings and gifts we have, it, it really can transform your life. Exactly. And it, it makes, and it makes exactly. things, it makes the world look brighter. Mm-hmm. Now, Meredith, thank you very much for joining us today. By the way, sure. Meredith, uh, you're also hosting a webinar next Friday, which I'll be presenting on. Can you talk to us a little bit about that as we conclude? Absolutely. So um, Dr. Ibima is going to be um, providing a wonderful webinar, which he has already presented, and I highly recommend if you have not participated in it yet to do so, um, to help our chaplains here in the state of Rhode Island, our hospice chaplains specifically, on how the CMS Centers for Medicare and Medicaid Services um, have changed their expectations of plans of care and how we can better document the incredible work that we're doing so that when somebody looks at our charting, they can see um, that chaplains are really doing incredible work in the field. Looking forward to that. Thank you very much. Me too. Thank you for having me. This podcast was recorded at Audio Hive Podcasting Studio in Joliet, Illinois. Audio Hive Podcasting is a studio dedicated to podcast recording, editing, and production. For more information, you can find us at audiohivepodcasting.com. 